the Enneagram becomes powerful, even in this quest to feed the soul, when we use it as a tool for transformation. And similarly with the other frameworks you named as well, including astrology and such, they're all tools for transformation. And one of the things that really called to me when I learned about the Enneagram is the fact that many teachers, including some of the preeminent teachers of the Enneagram, like John Riso and Ross Hudson, they say that this is an incredible tool to begin your spiritual path. Welcome to Let's Thrive the Podcast, a place for holistic storytelling with none of the BS and a whole lot of fun. I'm your host, Emily Feichels, and my mission is to interview guests that inspire, educate, and empower you to live your best life. In these stories, you'll see a part of your own journey reflected in theirs and learn to grow from it. And with that said, let's thrive. Hi there, everyone. My name is Emily Feichels, and I am the host of this here podcast, Let's Thrive. For anyone new or new-ish here to the show, welcome. And for any of the OG listeners, welcome back. You all know that I love to chat on 360 Wellness for mind, body, and spirit. And today's episode is a prime example of that exact philosophy. I'm not going to lie. 2020 did quite the number on my mental and emotional, and to be honest, physical health as well. I think for me personally, after lots of journaling and inward reflection, I think that 2020 was just a year of extreme overwhelm, stimulus, and uncertainty that led to a very unsettled mind. And the the word unsettled kind of clicked into place for me when my friend Mal from Mal's Fit Kitchen, amazing, wonderful human being, go follow her on Instagram. She's had two episodes on here. Anyway, she did a story the other day and she was saying how she felt very unsettled. And I was like, yes, that is how I felt quite literally all of 2020, just so unsettled in mind, body, and spirit. And I'm sure many of you could probably relate to that sentiment in one way or another. And so in this, I feel that in the past year, I was really pushed to analyze myself in ways unlike ever before. I mean, I think we all went through these personal tests and transformations that were powerful, but could also feel very hard at times. And for me, what I started to see and what I started to work on was this connection between my mindset and quite literally everything else in my life. Right? Like we all know our mind is reflected in our life, right? Like it happens, but I did not understand the extent to which my mindset can affect everything, right? Like how much was going on in my mental state that was affecting relationships and my workflow, uh, the way I ate, the way my body was reacting, like so many things that I just started to really become aware of. And I also started to become aware of all the subconscious messaging and beliefs I was carrying. And I started to notice those when I was forced to slow down, right? Like we were all forced to slow down and then speed up and then slow down in 2020, just depending on how things worked out with your quarantine or work or lockdown, etc. And I was really forced to pay attention in 2020. And I'm carrying that now into 2021. Like I want to be very self-aware, And as you'll hear me express and share in this conversation with today's guest, Vryn, 
I had to do, and I'm still doing, a lot of work with just certain aspects. And it's what we talk about today and what I was relating to is the idea of the inner critic and the limiting beliefs, right? Like I carry those in the work I do. I carry those in how I go out in the world. Uh, Another one was the labels that I identify with and do they propel me or do they hold me back? And this can relate once more in so many aspects of life. So it's, are you labeling yourself a certain way with diet and lifestyle and health? Are you labeling yourself as a certain work type or as a certain way in relationships, right? Like, and then in that identifying, is this label something true to me or is it holding me back in a sense? And then another thing for me personally was just raising that overall awareness and being very mindful, present, grounded, You guys know I love my astrology and human design and all that fun stuff. And I'm a very grounded person fundamentally, but it's so easy for me to get in my head, get lost, and just lose that grounded nature that makes me who I am. And so part of that and a big topic that we discussed in today's episode that just really, really hit home for me was the idea of working to be less reactive in life. And as you'll hear Vryn say, it's about creating space to pause to think, to sort of evaluate before just the automatic reaction, automatic response. And going on this a bit more, I wrote a caption on Instagram. If you don't follow me, I'm there at at Emily Feichels. I wrote this caption about how the ultimate power and the ultimate thing we do have control over in life is is the power of choice, right? Choosing how to react and respond to the everyday things that happen. Right? Like so many of us crave control, but we don't control any of our external environment. But what we can control is our reaction, our response. And so learning to be more intentional with that reaction and response is huge for me. And now I know I just went on like a big tangent there, but that was what was so wonderful about this conversation and interview with Vryn. She is a meditation teacher, an Enneagram coach, just an overall like <laughs> beautiful, beautiful mindful thoughtful soul and everything that she brought into this conversation was something that I needed to personally hear and I'm sure so many of you did so I hope it helps you as much as it did me I left this interview with so much to ponder about and journal and you know like move onward with and so I think it will leave leave you feeling very similar lots of good high vibe energy here Uh, And if it does provide you with something, share the love, like send it to a friend or a loved one that might need it or share it on your social and let us know what you thought of it. You can connect, you can tag us on there. I am at Emily Feichels and Vryn is at illuminate.nyc. Link below so you can get spelling and the full gist of it all. We would love to just connect, hear your thoughts on this, all the good stuff. And as always, if you're able to leave a quick rate and review, it really does help the show and it always makes my day. I smile. I love it. I feel like this is my jam. This is my community right here. And occasionally I'll even pick a review to read on here or I'll send you a little gift. So test your luck and support the show. You never know what's going to happen. But anyway, I appreciate you all for being here. And without further ado, let's begin. I'm so excited to just dive into all things Enneagram and ego and just this like self-work, personal growth that so many of us are interested in or going through ourselves. Uh, That being said, 
if you are comfortable sharing it, like what is your Enneagram type or yeah, I guess like, what's your type? how do you sort of get into it yourself? Yeah. So, um, the Enneagram type that I am is known as the achiever type and the motivation, which is what the Enneagram is really about, right? We're talking about an ego lens by which we see the world through. And so that ego lens comes along with it, um, a very, very particular driver, so to speak, or a motivation, which compels us to internalize occurrences, words, environments in a very particular way, which then causes the ego to kind of feel triggered. Oh my God, I'm not being seen the way I want to be seen or else. Oh, thank God. I, this is how I want to look to people and to come off to people. Phew. Okay. I don't need to sound the alarm. Right. And so for the achiever or for the Enneagram three, that motivation is to feel worthy or to feel valuable. And so the, the interesting thing about the Enneagram is that these nine ego lenses or these nine energies are there within all of us, but the extent by to which we are pulled or, or kind of almost like forced to, to view things from that perspective is especially strong with one lens and then another secondary lens. Okay. So that makes sense. Um, I think of it as a lot of these other, you know, things we learn about ourselves, right? Like there's a bit of everything within each of us, right? But there's one that might hold a bit more sway over us or with us. And so, okay, that's interesting. Um, And I know like, you know, we touched on this when we were talking the other day, but you're not one for the Enneagram tests. And so, and I, I agree, I've discussed this with another Enneagram teacher as well. And people that listened to that podcast episode know a bit about why, you know, in that case, but, you know, overall, is it because when you're taking these tests, right, like they're self-administered. So you have the ego and you have these imprints on our minds playing a part in this quote unquote testing as well, right? Like it's not, it's like, is it truly us answering these questions or is there like a bit of sway happening there? I love that. And I think you picked up on a really, really important nuance. Yes, the ego's at play at all times. And with that comes a certain social desirability bias. Even if nobody is seeing what we're doing, there's always this kind of inner uh, refrain or critic that's kind of monitoring how you want to appear to other people and how you want to appear to yourself most of all. And so that social desirability bias definitely comes into play when administering any of personality tests, what to speak of the Enneagram. And specifically with this framework, it's very difficult to get to motivation when you're doing multiple choice. And so many of your listeners and many people who might be interested and potentially or have been kind of debating, should I take an online online test or not? Um, One of the things they might want to consider is that, or they'll experience is when they look at the questions, they may feel, I could answer yes to all of these. It just depends on the circumstance. And that is motivation. And that becomes very difficult. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that was my experience where I remember thinking I could, like, I'm so circumstantial. I, I think that way for a lot of things in life. And so that's interesting. Right. And I think a lot of us think of motivation as 
the external sort, right? Like there's all these external motivators in the everyday, but there's also a lot of the internal motivators as well. And, you know, while we're on this idea of motivation, just could you dive a bit more into how that plays a part with the Enneagram, right? Because I think a lot of us think of it as just these types that help us understand ourselves. And that is true, but like there is all this background work that goes into it. And motivation is definitely like a key factor as you're sharing here. So could you just like explain a bit more about that in general? Yeah, so with respect to motivation, and again, I really like how you put that. There is a certain tendency for many of us to think motivation as external, because when we even use that word, often it's to get a result, right? That we rarely think, or we may even label ourselves as, well, I'm not really like a self-starter, as in I don't really have the motivation myself to do something. But the motivation we're talking about here is driving and inspiring us to a different result than something perhaps very tangible, as in, I want to get an A on my test, or I want to, I want to land this particular job or want to be in this kind of relationship. Rather, this motivation is inspiring us to show up in a certain way. And it's really the driving force behind the ego and the identity, right? And that's really what the Enneagram is all about. What are these particular identities that we're trying to um, almost like dress ourselves up in, right? Now, what's so beautiful about the Enneagram and when you speak about identity as well, is that it really depends on the level of consciousness and awareness that you're operating in. And so when you're extremely aware and very present to what is going on with the ego inside of you, you start to realize that, yes, you know, there are certain gifts, capacities, a certain way in which that I can see the world, but I'm not limited to only see the world in that way. And so even if, for example, my motivation is to be a really peaceful person, I really like to see things in a holistic, balanced way, right? Um, So for that type of person, they may, the external behavior may present themselves, the motivation for that external behavior may be, I'm going to avoid, avoid conflict, because if I avoid conflict, that way I can preserve that peace and that harmony that I so desperately desire. And that's also how I see myself as a peaceful person. However, if someone like that is operating at a very high level of consciousness, they may recognize sometimes I actually recognize that conflict is necessary at times to truly attain peace. And so then I can pick and choose the way I respond as opposed to just kind of boxing myself in. Oh, because I love how you said that because I was thinking as in that last part, how someone trying to avoid conflict, which I resonate with immensely, that going unchecked could lead to maybe some struggles with people pleasing, like just to throw one out there, right? Totally. I am a recovering people pleaser every single day. Like it is something that comes up at some point and I have to work through it most days. And I think that that's like one glimpse into how these seeming like, right. Like what what seems bad about like, Oh, I'm going to avoid conflict, right? Like that seems like it would be a 
good thing. But yeah, anything left unchecked like that can snowball into so much more. And I, people pleasing was like the first thing that came to mind to me is just a way that that could go, you know, get a bit out of hand. Easily. And it's such a, it's such an apt observation because that does tend to go. And that's where so fascinating, right? That if you just look at behavior, there could be numerous reasons why somebody might want to people please, Mm -hmm. right? What somebody may want to people please because they just want to avoid conversations with them, right? So that's one reason. Or I people please because I'll be liked, right? I'll be loved and so I can feel connected more. Or I can people please because I just want to avoid conflict. And so narrowing down that motivation becomes so important to understand why someone, or most importantly, we ourselves are showing up the way that we are. Oh, I didn't even think of it that way. But yeah, I mean, with that one behavior, there can be so many, like just different branches of a, another behavior driving it. And that that could be something important to look at. And another thing that this had me thinking of is I'm reading the book Atomic Habits right now. I love that book. Yeah. And I'm at the point right now where he's talking about how, you know, for many of us with habits, we're setting this goal, oftentimes an external goal. We're just working towards it. And he was talking in the recent chapter about finding that identity part. So flipping it from just like, this is what I want to achieve, or this is what I want to do for this habit, whatever it is, to instead looking at like, who do you want to be? Like understanding the identity with it all. And that was huge to me because there are so many of these like goals that I want to accomplish. And a lot of them are sort of habit-based as well. But this whole time, I never once stopped to think about like, the identity attached to those, right? Like who I want to be as a person overall. And it shifted actually from external motivation to more internal motivation in a sense, because I started to think about that identity, about who do I want to be? How do I want to be in the world? And so that's another thing that got me thinking of when you were just discussing the identity part with the Enneagram and motivation as well. It reminds me of Simon Sinek's famous um, asking why, right? What is the why behind it? And when we continuously keep asking about the why, why do I want to do this? Why do I want to do this? Why do I want to do this? We eventually get down to the identity piece. I want to do this because it reflects in some way, shape, or form something that I want to experience for myself and I want others to experience about me. I like that. The idea of just asking why. I think there's so much that can come from that. (laughs) I mean, you know, if you start to think about every little part of your life and you don't have to do it for every little part, but just different ways you could ask that why question. Like it's such a powerful one. Uh, Even just the word why itself is a question. Exactly. And it brings forth a sense of curiosity as opposed to judgment. Mm -hmm. Right. And this, this goes very much hand in hand with one of the things that I think is so powerful with the Enneagram that has helped me personally, and that is helping to understand how my own inner critic works, right? And that inner critic is constantly going and we all experience it. That inner critic looks different depending on the particular ego lens by which we see the world through. But the one thing that all of these inner critics have in common is that somewhere deep down embedded in that scathing message. It's typically scathing. It's brutal. 
there is some truth in there, right? There is some truth. And to really be able to ask why with curiosity, as opposed to just falling into that very common space of just believing the inner critic without questioning at all. Oh, I a hundred percent agree. And if you feel comfortable, like, do you mind sharing maybe like something that that inner critic was telling you? Uh, Because it is something that so many of us struggle with. Right. And it's, Mm -hmm. I think it can show up in a lot of sneaky ways that we don't always see. Right. Like, and that's something else we can talk about, right. Is like finding that bit of clarity in your mind so that you can differentiate between in, you know, uh, thoughts that are from your most true authentic mind And then these external ones that can kind of float their way in. And I feel like a self-critic can kind of be in that sense where it's like, if you're not as aware of them, then it's hard. It's easy for the lines to be blurred, right? Between being able to identify, this is my inner critic talking and just otherwise believing like, this is me, right? Like believing it wholeheartedly in a sense. Yeah, for myself, um, one of, I mean, my inner critic is working at me 24-7. I wonder if it ever stops, honestly. <laughs> I don't think it does. And this is the thing. Um, it's there for a purpose. It's important. It is important. And I think that one of the biggest realizations I've had is the inner critic serves a purpose. And that purpose is actually for me to pause and mm-hmm. to stop. Because without it, I may not actually see the truth that it's pointing to. Now, the issue lies in how I respond to it. And typically, it's a trigger happy reaction of I experience it and bam, you know, the automatic response or reactivity comes spilling out of me. But the way in which I've started to understand more deeply that I need to work with my inner critic, and I believe that this is really the way that anyone can start, at least, is to stop, to pause, to breathe, and to listen to its full message. Because I don't know if you experience this, but normally when I hear it, I'm trying to cut it off before it continues. And that's where that reactivity piece comes in. And then it just keeps coming up over and over and over again. But to allow it to say its piece, to talk to other people who know me very well in my life to actually find what is that piece of truth that might be there and then to act on that truth as opposed to the tone, which is what I'm typically responding to. And so for me, you know, um, with the motivation being worth, most of my inner critics narrative is around your failure. If you're not doing X, you're not successful, that you need a guarantee in order to try. And if you don't try it, and it's amazing how it actually, it plays both sides. So for example, I may have an idea and then the inner critic will, will say, but are you sure? Like, are you sure that it will work? Like you actually need a guarantee to make sure that that will be successful. And then in the times that I kind of listen to it and I say, okay, well, yeah, I I actually don't have a guarantee, you know, not even a couple of days need to pass just a couple of minutes or hours. And it will just take the other side and it'll say that you should have tried, see somebody else is trying. Why didn't you try? And that's where we get caught in this like catch 22 of being between a two-sided figure that is like speaking like the exact opposite. And then we're left confused going like, but I thought I shouldn't try, but actually I should have tried. 
And it's all there to just kind of protect this, um, again, this identity of worth of seeming to be valuable or successful. So that's an example in my own personal life. Yeah, I like what you said there, because actually, when you turned the question to me, not when you turned it, but when you brought it up for me as well, I started to think and I'm actually not sure when the last time was I did let the self-critic finish what it was trying to say, right? Like there's, it's become, it's become a habit, a reflex to cut it off because I just don't know how else to work through it. And I know a big thing for me is when it comes to, you know, body image, certain like health things, that's just an area that I've always struggled with. And especially with body image, I think so many of us feel this, uh, you know, in the light of like body dysmorphia, where it's, you know, there's moments where you see your body or you feel a certain way. And these thoughts, like they come so often that it, it is just easier in a way to almost like flip that switch of like cutting it off. Right. But what happens is that it still enters your mind. So, you know, now I'm really thinking on this and I'm like, how many times a day does that self-critic come in to like be just like badgering me about my body and how I look and I just cut it off and you know, I think I'm protecting myself, but in reality, like I'm still then feeling down about myself. Right. So I think that is curious and something that I personally may try now is like, what if I just let the thought complete itself? You know, what if I heard whatever this nasty message is, and then I was able to sit with myself and just really reflect on it and ask that why question, right? Like, why do I think that way about my body? Like, why do I feel that way? Um, so I think that's really, that's really powerful. I never thought of it as like just letting it go out. And that last bit you were talking there to me, it almost sounds like a sort of indecisiveness, right? I think there's like this decision fatigue. There's all these ways that nowadays it's so easy to just become and almost label ourselves as indecisive. And I'm wondering now, like, how does that relate more so to that inner critic, right? Of knowing the two, the catch 22 of if I do this, this will occur. If I don't do this, this will occur, right? It's almost like we're planning out how it's going to happen in our head and maybe even, I don't know, just exasperating the indecisiveness. Yeah. And, and we'll see that depending on how we're built, there is a proclivity for certain people to just be extremely decisive and go one way. Right. Mm -hmm. And that can sometimes be helpful, but sometimes it can actually be hurtful to us as as well. And for others, the proclivity might be towards staying in that place of limbo. Mm -hmm. Right. And then again, can be helpful, can be hurtful. So regardless of the um, way in which we're naturally wired, we notice and, and we'll see that staying in that level of awareness where we're so fixated on having certain identities be validated because that's really what it is. And when we're looking for, especially for that external validation, we'll see that we're much more likely to be reactive when that inner critic comes up. And when we recognize actually that these qualities which support these particular identities that are very dear to me are naturally there, there's actually nothing to prove. Then we start to live in a space of being much more grounded, being much more present, 
being much less reactive. And then we actually have so much more facility to to choose other options that may not come so naturally to us, but are are actually appropriate for that time, place, and circumstance. And when we're in the presence of those individuals, we all experience that. We think like, wow, you know, that person is actually such a quiet person, but they spoke up in that setting. And I, I don't know how they did that. And, and you see that that's because their level of awareness is very high. They can now pick and choose how to show up as opposed to almost being controlled by that lens or that energy. Mm, yes, I love that. And I actually journaled for the beginning of this year um, about how I just wanted to focus a bit more in general, not even for just this year, but on being less reactive, right? So being the person that can take things in, material, you know, just like take them in, honestly, and then then choose, right? Because there's so much out of our control in all reality. But one thing that we can always control is how we react or how we respond. Yes. And so I feel like that is just such like the ultimate superpower. If you can hone in on that and be that person that chooses when to react versus just acting on impulse. And I actually just relating this a bit to everyone like listening, I have a large community that does struggle with you know, whether it's disordered eating, mental health, eating disorders, body dysmorphia, et cetera. And how this can so, so easily relate is I just talked with another woman on OCD, right. And understanding like compulsions and how our minds um, react in that sense. And it's just so powerful to really look at throughout your day. How are you, how are you reacting, right? Like, are these, are you reacting in a way that is in your control, it's by choice, it's thought of, intentional, or are you almost like acting with compulsion, right? And mm. reacting in that like fire way of the moment you see yourself a certain way in the mirror, you have like a trigger to restrict, or yeah. I mean, there's so many other ways, right, that this can go off. Um, and so I really love that idea. And I guess, do you have any tips like from your own experience on how to be just like a bit more to build up that awareness, I suppose, so that we can choose how we're reacting instead of just firing off like the first initial habitual reaction that comes to mind when we are triggered or kind of like pushed to react in a sense. One of the things that has specifically worked for me, and I mean, this is a this is going to be a lifetime work in progress, so I'm nowhere at a mastery level. I'm just you know, a beginner novice myself, but the simple act of breathing (laughs) is actually very, very powerful. And when you were speaking, you know, it reminded me of this extremely famous quote by Viktor Frankl, and I'll just paraphrase it. He says that between stimulus and response lies a space. And within that space is our freedom of choice. So when I think of how to prevent or how to be less reactive, I think of what are the different ways in which I can create more space? That's what it's about. And so a simple way is taking five deep breaths. And and that has numerous effects to it, right? Because when we're in a triggered state, when we are feeling reactive, we're in kind of like this flight mode, right? Of just the body is like just firing on all on all cylinders, even if it's a mental firing, you know, we see ourselves in the mirror, we get triggered, but to 
close our eyes, to actually take in that much needed oxygen, to allow for the intelligence to actually step in, right? And so one of the things that has been very helpful for me is that studying yoga philosophy, you know, my entire life, um, it speaks about how there's the mind and there's the ego and there's the intelligence and they're all separate. And so the mind is what is constantly categorizing everything as good and bad. The intelligence can actually see the gray. And that's what we need. So when we react, it's typically due to the function of the mind, the mind saying, you look terrible, or you shouldn't look this way, or what will people think? Or how could you have let yourself go? You know, like, it's just constantly kind of like saying all of these things to us. But the intelligence, when it can actually step in, it's actually given space to step in, can provide much needed context. And I think that's where that piece of grace is needed, you know, and we need so much more context in our lives, you know, like that inner critic doesn't provide the context. What provides context is the intelligence. Oh my gosh. I love that so much. I haven't heard of that distinction between mind, ego, and intelligence, but it just resonates so deeply. And I'm sure anyone listening, it will feel similarly where, yeah, I mean, that's that constant categorization of good and bad. That is something we talk about all the time on this podcast when it comes to food, body image, anything. So many, even, you know, when it comes to success, different money, different jobs, like how we label things so often. And in the end, like it's not serving us at all, but what does serve us are those moments of grace, the pause, that inner intelligence. Um, like we are all, we all have so much like inner knowledge and power that we just don't always give ourselves like the opportunity to tap into. And I feel like you're so right there about having just that moment of pause to let that come in. I think that's so empowering. And um, breath work is like, you know, even just deep breaths, such a time for that. Um, I think for some people too, and something that works for me also is just overall sensory. So it's, you know, you're taking the deep breaths, but also just if you can like try to activate all five senses, like, you know, one by one or at once, however it be just like a way to get grounded, create space, create pause. So I love that. Yeah. That along with writing, writing is cathartic. And I think that oftentimes as a coach, I hear this all the time because I always encourage anyone that I meet to write. And there can be, again, the identity, the ego again, comes up there, but I'm not a writer. I'm not a, like, I'm not good at writing. You know, that's not what this is about. Writing is like breathing in many ways. It allows us to process. It gives space. That's the thing. And when you write, not with the computer, especially if you're a great typist, you know, that's not helpful. Taking a piece of paper, grabbing a pen or pencil and writing it down. The time it takes for you to write, whatever is coming and flowing through you is creating the space for the next realizations to come forth. And again, another beautiful way to encourage that pausing. I love that. And I think it is so true because I was the type to always be like, you know, it's like every, everyone knows like writing out helps, but I am such a like 
hustle. Let's go, go, go. You know, I'm like, well, I'm quicker with typing. Why don't I just type? And it just never works the same. And that is it exactly what you just said there. It is the time it physically takes you to write and do that script that allows that next realization and next thought to form until like, before you know it, you filled two journal pages or whatever it is. Right. And you don't even realize it because it becomes so meditative in a sense. And typing has its time and its place. But I think for like the sense of creating space and calm and grace and just that feeling of groundedness, there is something about pen, pencil, paper, whatever combo you're using that is just so, so cathartic and leads to so much more. And like you mentioned, you know, it's involving the senses. Like Mm -hmm. that's a beautiful way to actually involve the senses. The eyes are seeing what you've written, you know, your hands are actually grasping that pen you're feeling the paper, you know, you can also create a really beautiful like environment to do that, you know, like light a candle or essential oil, whatever, you know, like you can make it an experiential meditative process for processing. hundred percent. And I like that. Also, like if you, if you want to like have your environment be reflective of what you're, you know, doing, I love that as well. Um, and then going back a bit, I wanted to ask before, but we've been talking a lot about the ego in this sense. And I know I personally have a sort of definition of it, you know, thoughts of my own and from talking with others. But for anyone that's heard about it, you know, they know the word, they kind of know what's going on with it. Could you just give in your own words an idea to us of what the ego is, you know, how does it relate to us, you know, the impact it creates? just to give like a kind of 360 view of what we're talking about here when we discuss the ego. For sure. So the ego, as I'm diving deeper into understanding it, um, is to me really this, this collection of identities that all actually boil into one identity, but it's a collection of identities that we hold extremely near and dear to our hearts. And so these are like labels that we put on ourselves. And it can range anywhere from like the more um, gross, like I'm a daughter, I'm a mother, I'm a friend, you know, like in terms of relationships to the extremely subtle, you know, that I am, um, you know, I'm an introvert or I am uh, extremely sensitive, right? Like those kinds of qualities that are intangible and that we hold very close to our hearts and they are not always positive. That's the fascinating thing I always notice, right? Sometimes the identity that I might have is like, I'm not a writer, I'm a procrastinator, I get angry quickly, right? So those are all the kinds of things that comprise the ego. And so like that collection really is that kind of who I am, so to speak, right? This is who I am. I'm a collection of this. And that's how, that's why it's only in the past, I would probably say like five, six, seven years since I've come across the Enneagram. I find it so fascinating when people say or ask, um, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you do? You know, and we list a bunch of labels actually, but who are we? Like, who are we truly? And referring back to the yoga text, what they speak of is that at essence, we are actually spirit, you know, and that spirit is comprised of three very specific qualities. And that is we are full of eternality, bliss, 
and knowledge. That is who we really are. And that is amazing. I wish like we could present ourselves that way. I'm actually a spirit. You know, I'm having a material experience, but I'm actually a spiritual being. These are the qualities that I come up with. They're hidden right now. I realize that I may not have access to all of them, but that's who I truly am. And what is it that really drives me? Well, it's to love and to be loved and to actually be of service to others. That's who I am. And so what is the ego? The ego is there in place so that we can have the material experiences that we're having because those labels and identities as useful as they are and they have their place they are important are temporary whereas this piece of being full of eternality knowledge and bliss that can never be taken away from us and has nothing to do with body image it has nothing to do with any of these material impositions that's the only way i can put it you know that are put out there and that are societal based this is something that is rooted so so deeply so that to me is actually what the crux ultimately of any type of self work and what you know at least personally i aspire to is to recognize okay the ego is there it's helpful for me to navigate this world but i don't need to always get caught up in it i don't need to be on a mission to constantly feed it it's there it's always being fed. How about I feed this part of me as well? Oh, I love that. And the first thing that came to mind was I read The Untethered Soul uh, about a year ago. And he talks about in that how, you know, we as a soul, right? As pretty much what you're saying, like the idea of we are a spirit, we're this core part. And all these other things that we introduce ourselves as like the labels and ever since basically just what you were saying there. And ever since then, I swear I cannot introduce myself without thinking these are my <laughs> labels. I people feel the like, same way. <laughs> people be like, what do you do? Like, Oh, that's, you know, and I, and I swear I pause every time. And it's not because, you know, I know, I know what I am. I know my labels, you know, but every time I think if only I could give them my real answer, right. Which is like spewing (laughs) from my heart, from my soul centered space. But instead, you know, I have the labels of my age and my name, even, you know, my age, my name, what I do for a living, where I live. Like, it's so funny how once you start also, once you start to think that way, once you start to raise awareness around those, I think it's much easier to pick up on those labels Right. So for me, it would come up in conversation where I'd be using them almost as like an excuse or as a way to explain myself, you know, and I'd throw out something like, well, I'm an introvert or, you know, well, I'm traumatized from that. Right. Like I'm the victim. I'm this, I'm that. And what's funny is that every time I found myself saying those, I'm blank statements, I'd be like, oh, another pause. Like, okay, let's come back to this later because how am I like identifying with this? How am I letting it impact my life? Especially when it comes to certain things like, you know, I'm quick tempered, I'm reactive, right? Like I've, I've even been saying those in this conversation and while they are true, while there's a place for the ego in these labels and identities, like also 
taking the time and the space to understand like, how are they holding me back? How are they negatively impacting me? Like, oh, there's so much you can do here for anyone that's interested. Like, I know ego can sound like a big, scary world, but it's not like, let's just take some time to break down like these identities and labels and how are they benefiting us? How are they holding us back? What's the overall impact of them on us as a, as a soul, as a spirit, right? Just in a human form. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things that I think we've all experienced, you know, we experience ego, egoism from other people, right? And we, we experience and what, what that is, is somebody trying really hard to get validation out of us for the identities and labels that they hold near and dear to them. And so we are all guilty of this. Now, we may do it in much more nuanced, quiet ways, or we may do it in extremely loud ways and everything in between, but we all um, require a certain amount of validation to help us feel, you know, oh, this is who I am. Like, this is where I belong. That's another piece that these labels and identities do, right? It helps us to feel a sense of belonging. And again, it has its place. And that's why one of the beautiful things that I always find incredible that the yoga texts describe is that the ego on its own is neither good or bad. It's a function and it's a necessary function that we need as souls to have this material experience. Otherwise, it becomes very difficult to do that, right? Um, and very difficult to relate to other people, especially if that is not part of the consciousness or that they're operating on, honestly, right? And so, and that's okay if they're not, but to continue to feed that ego by trying to wring out that validation is actually counterintuitive to what will truly make us happy. Yeah, I, once more, as the text says, it's that mind-ego intelligence, right? So ego is going to be there. Mind is going to try to tell us it's good or bad one way or another, but how can we find that intelligence of understanding? As you said, there is a time and a place for it. And, you know, something it got me thinking on here too is just how, as you said, like we do need it, right? Like we are here living a material, like based life. Like we are in a human form. We have human functions. Like the ego is here to help us live this life that we're here to live, right? And part of that is creating these identities of like how, the, like being our most authentic physical form as possible in a sense. And I think so many of us spend like so much of our life trying to figure out who we are and, you know, basically just, it's like one big experiment, right? Like it's, it's almost like you're trying on these different identities, these different parts of the ego, and you're finding the ones that fit you best in this lifetime. And that's that, right? Like that's self-discovery because it's, it's like fundamentally, you know, we are the spirit, but we also then have these identities that we are wearing in this lifetime that we're living in this, you know, incarnation. So it's like, how can we sort of like explore and experiment and be open to trying on these different, yeah, different identities, different, different labels, even different ways of living to find what suits us best. And I think that could be like such a beautiful way of looking to the ego as a part of the story of your life, right? Like 
it's, it's helping you develop like those chapters along the way in a sense. So I love that not labeling it as good or bad. It just is like, it's just there. It just is. And like with anything, um, with any instrument, the instrument can be used for good and bad. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. And so similarly, the same thing with the ego, but if we can actually start to understand, and, and this is where like frameworks like the Enneagram I found has helped so much because it not only kind of gives this blueprint really of, of not having to like spend so much time in figuring out what are those identities because now we're getting to the root. And when you get to the root, it's like, got it. This is why all these identities are so important to me. Okay, because it's like rooted in this one thing. We're starting to understand our psychophysical nature. And that is also there in this you know, human incarnation, as you beautifully put it, to help us, to help us navigate. But the fixation of that psychophysical nature is once again, that can be <laughs> that can be extremely challenging and can get in the way of our evolution. So it kind of goes hand in hand to like understand the facilities and gifts, which include the mind, the body, the ego, the intelligence, you know to understand those gifts so that we can use them in the best possible way to serve other people. But then at the same time to invest equal, if not more, but let's even try for a little bit more time in, you know, what powers all of this, which is the soul. Right. And so when those two things are going and, and we're working on them hand in hand, that actually makes for like this perfect mix, this perfect balance, because then my pursuit of happiness in this world isn't always relying on the external, right? It's actually starting to recognize and we, and it doesn't, doesn't become like this really cute new agey cliche of like happiness lies within. We truly deeply understand that, that happiness is within because the soul by nature is full of bliss. Going back to that bliss part where you're saying there, yeah, about us as a spirit. Oh, I love that. And especially what you said about the Enneagram. And I think this way about astrology, human design, any of these, like they are frameworks, right? And they are tools we can access. Uh, and they're so wonderful to learn and, you know, access. But with that, it does come the responsibility of, you know, as we were saying in the beginning, like, when you're doing these tests or when you're identifying with certain ways, a not taking it too, too far, right. Not, not just using it as like another label cop out of, Oh, I'm a five. So this is why I do that. And I'm not going to change anything about it. Like, no, that's not what it's here for. But um, that being said, like, how do you suggest people get started with the Enneagram per se um, just in like the most, authentic way possible, right? So there are people that provide coaching for it. Uh, There are the online tests. There's these ways that we can access it. But if someone wants to be very intentional and mindful of the fact that we now know there are other parts, you know, playing this game with us, like how would you suggest people dive deeper into the Enneagram and understanding their type in that intentional way? Absolutely. Yeah. Happy to share. Just wanted to, um, just share something that came up as you were just speaking, you know, and I think this is, this is so important. The Enneagram becomes powerful, even in this quest to 
feed the soul when we use it as a tool for transformation. And similarly with the other frameworks you named as well, including astrology and such, they're all tools for transformation. And one of the things that really called to me when I learned about the Enneagram is the fact that many teachers, including some of the preeminent teachers of the Enneagram, like John Riso and Ross Hudson, they say that this is an incredible tool to begin your spiritual path. And I think that's so profound because how do we know what it is we need to work on? It is so individual. And that is where the power of the Enneagram actually lies. Yes, it can totally help you in attaining goals and helping you figure out your purpose. And those are noble, important things to figure out. And for um, many people, that's what first attracts them. And that is terrific. And then as they work, work with it, and I see this with, with people that I, that I work with, they start off that way and then they start to go deeper because they realize like, wow, this is also pointing to me, where are the specific places that I need to start letting go, where I hold on too tightly? And then once we kind of like get to that, that place of where that inner work is happening, then that spiritual step just becomes very, very natural. It isn't even an imposition. It's just like, wow, there is no other place to go. I'm starting to realize, right, this is all, um, this is all helpful for me to navigate this material world. But now I want to understand more deeply. I want to, as my own Enneagram teachers say, the time has come to start letting the ego die in natural death so that who I really am can come to life. Mm, I love that. Especially, yeah, the, that beginning part, just, yeah, almost like fueling the fire, starting it, starting everything up. Uh, and then just sort of, you know, seeing where it takes you and going further in it. That is so, so, so powerful. And I guess, you know, when it comes to initially starting that, right. So it's, maybe it's like that bit of a drive or you're feeling pulled to start it. Like how, how should people get started with this before they feel that, you know, and then I I feel like once you do get started, once you find, you know, what you do identify with most, right? Like you said, there's a bit of everything in each of us, but when we find that thing that we do connect with most and that's sort of what drives our attention for the time being, like, how do you suggest people get started in that sense? Yeah. So um, a few ways I would definitely suggest um, reading, reading some books is fantastic. Um, One book that I really love is The Road Back to You. Um, It's a great starter book. Very, very easy to um, kind of just like fall into. That's the best way I can put it. The writing is extremely compelling. I think it's a fantastic book. And then of course, there's kind of like the quote, at least I call it the Bible of the Enneagram. And that is the wisdom of the Enneagram, which is written by John Riso and Russ Hudson. And that is so deep and is full of so much nuance. Now, the thing with reading is that similar to the test in one way, there is no back and forth in terms of really, really pinpointing motivation. So I find it's a fantastic first place to start to kind of like get an idea of, well, what are the nine energies? What are the nine motivations? And so that's very helpful. But the two ways in which I've found 
to be extremely helpful in figuring out what is that primary ego lens by which I see the world through is to take um, a workshop and workshops are phenomenal. In fact, the workshop that I first took that helped me really understand the Enneagram better um, is coincidentally run by my husband and his best friend who run a, um, a company that helps to bring the Enneagram into companies and helps teams build trust. And so their, their company is called Upbuild and they run these workshops, I want to say almost at least two, three times a year. It's phenomenal. It's fantastic because you actually get to experience the different energies of the types. And that is actually what really, really can help unlock for you personally, which type resonates with you the most. And if it isn't possible to attend a workshop or, you know, you're really, really curious, you want to find out right now, then Enneagram consultations are fantastic. And this is something that I um, feel blessed that I can offer to other people. And what that really comprises of is a lot of questioning. You know, it's this session dedicated to you to really kind of uncover the nuances of why you do what you do. And typically people walk away with a extremely strong sense of, I understand, I'm getting it. And that allows them to kind of take those next steps forward. And for, for people who want to have some guidance and, and some accountability in, in terms of doing that work, then Enneagram coaching can become a next step. Or else, yeah, even just taking some time to sit with that information can be extremely powerful. That is so neat. I didn't know there's such a thing as Enneagram workshops. I mean, it makes sense now that you say it, I'm like it's yeah. genius, <laughs> uh, but it's, that's so neat. And I feel personally like that would be, oh, that would just be such a experience. I, I feel like that is the way I would connect most and dive into it. But as you said, you know, if that's not possible, the consultations, I've had many good friends do that. And it's, I, I just feel like that is such a powerful way as well. I know for me with astrology, I didn't want, like I, I could get the print off, you know, online, everyone does, but I had a full astrology chart reading that changed everything. And now people ask me my sign and I'm like, that doesn't matter because I have all these other factors that are actually making me act in ways that aren't, you know, in conjunction with my sign and yada, yada. It's like, there's so much back story with it and explanations. And so that's what I love about the idea of the consultations, right? It's because it's not just you and these multiple choice. There's someone else there. It's like, yeah, I just, I think it's more of that open, open space to allow the truth to come through. Exactly. And, you know, it's a conversation. And so, yes, there may be many questions coming at you, but then there's also perhaps links, you know, you know, that's something that uh, I try to do whenever I work with somebody to just present links to them. And then that might allow for, you know, mini epiphanies to come forth within themselves to be like, yes, actually, that's it. I didn't realize that for the longest time, I thought it was this. And that really, really helps to clarify those moments are just the things that I live for to see people make connections just based off of like, here, I just noticed you said these two things in five minutes. And it's like, wow, oh my God, I never knew that. And so that is a fantastic way. And then, um, yeah, and, and perhaps if this can also be of service, I'm just in the 
process of doing this, but I'm coming up with an Enneagram meditations course that will hopefully be launched in the next couple of months. So if anybody is interested, please stay tuned and you can um, sign up to receive more information. I'd be happy to provide that information. And the idea with that is to actually experience the types through meditation. Oh, wow. And to experience the energies in that way. And so this is helpful, not whether you know about the Enneagram or whether you don't know about the Enneagram, because the idea is to feel and experience what each type actually experiences. Wow. That's a whole other way too, of then being able to connect, right? Because it's, it's like, how are these feeling in my body? Like, you know, am I swayed towards one? That's so neat. I was actually curious about that because I knew of your background with meditation in the Enneagram. I was going to ask earlier, like if you had ever, you know, found certain meditations to help with that. But so that is amazing. And uh, for anyone that does want to follow along and just, you know, be there for when that launches and just overall, you know, get more information and le- learnings and lessons from you. Uh, where can they connect? Where can they find you? Yeah, they can find me at, I'm honestly, social media at this point in time, I can only just do one thing. So yes. <laughs> I'm typically, I, I spend the very little time that I have on Instagram and you can find me at my handle, which is at illuminate.nyc. That's I-L-L-U-M-I-N-A-T-E dot N-Y-C. And then um, the other way in which you can connect with me, a couple of ways you can um, sign up to be on my mailing list. And so one of those things that happens that, um, that I've actually just, I started this late last year and I found it to be so personal in a way that um, Instagram sometimes can't be. And that is I send out weekly newsletters and it's just reflections. It's often based on the Enneagram, you know, and it's just to kind of allow people to pause and reflect. That's really it. And so you can sign up for that. And then finally, um, one of the things that I recognize as a person who teaches meditation is that intention setting is just so important and it's so integral to meditation. And so I created um, kind of like a meditation uh, intention setting, sorry, intention setting template, which really guides somebody to the aspects that are needed in terms of what are the two crucial elements that are required to successfully manifest your intentions. And so you can also feel free to um, download that. It's just, it's a complimentary offering. I felt like this might be something that could help other people. And it's based on, you know, my years of um, learning from different teachers and has a full section on how and where you can go wrong based on my own personal experiences. (laughs) Oh, I love it. And I feel you on being, I, yeah, between the podcast and Instagram, I constantly feel, I I started an Instagram for the podcast and I'm like, nope, can't have a third, (laughs) a third place to direct my energy. Like it gets updated once in a blue moon. But, um, so I feel that, and I love that. And, you know, people can go on there, they can message, you know, contact however possible, um, and just see what you're offering connect. So I love that. And thank you so much for taking the time for this. I just, 
I am blown away. And I know anyone that listens will be too. Uh, Thank you so much for creating the space. You know, I feel like this is one conversation that really resonates for me in terms of at least the time that we got to spend on the inner critic portion. And that also that extremely crucial piece about what is the ego? What is the soul? Where is the difference? What do I feed, you know, and just so grateful to, um, yeah, just to be connected with you and to also have this space and time dedicated to talking about these incredibly important and necessary topics and themes for our lives, honestly.